Uh, seven hours, yes. So maybe he got raptured. Yeah, it's coming our way. Okay, it says we're live, so we're just going to go with it. Sergio is either sleeping or he's hiding or something. So we're just going to go with uh, the fact that we're live. And if it's not live, then what we'll do is we will um, just have to go home and record it and take it off the recording and upload it that way. But we'll assume that we're live. And we have today... Uh, hey. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, we got Bet, which is Psalm 119, verse 8, or 9, I'm sorry. Where are we? Psalm 119, yes, verse 9. And Bet, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not neglect, I will not forget your word. All right, we got that. And then we also have, uh, let's see here. Today is the 24th of June. This is this day in Christian history, 24 June. Behold the power of prayer. William Carey has been called the father of modern missions. Born near Northampton, England in 1761, Carey worked as a shoemaker from the age of 14 to 28. Born again at 18, he began preaching in the evenings. At the age of 19, Carey married Dorothy Plackett, who was called Dolly. She was six years older than her husband and had very little in common with him, whereas Carey had taught himself Latin by the age of 12 and went on to master Greek, Hebrew, French, and Dutch. Dolly was illiterate and signed her name with an X. As a journeyman shoemaker, Carey was never able to raise his family out of poverty. As a young man, Carey developed a great burden for unevangelized people in foreign lands. In 1792, he was instrumental in founding the first modern missionary society, the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen, later known as the Baptist Missionary Society. The following year, Carey went to India as the mission board's first missionary. At first, Dolly refused to accompany her husband to India, wanting to stay behind with her two youngest sons, Peter and Jabez. Carey insisted that at least his six-year-old son, William Jr., go with him. Finally, Dolly was pressured into joining the venture, and the whole family went together to India. Once there, five-year-old Peter died of dysentery, and Dolly was pushed over the edge into insanity. She had delusions that her husband was having affairs with other women and would follow him down the street, berating him. Finally, he had to keep her in a locked room. Their deeply troubled family life had a devastating effect on the children, Throughout the early years, the boys never experienced a functional family. They basically raised themselves because their father, though he loved them dearly, was too busy and too mild-mannered to discipline them. Years later, back in England on June 24, 1812, the Baptist Missionary Society met to celebrate its 20th anniversary. John Ryland, the pastor who had baptized William Carey years before, gave the evening sermon. As he was about to close his remarks, Ryland mentioned that he had gotten a letter from William Carey in which he wrote that one of his sons, 19-year-old Jabez, had brought much heartache to his father in India because he had never given his allegiance to Jesus. 
Terry had agonized in prayer for years over his son's lost condition and now is asking his English supporters to join him in prayer for him. As Ryland explained about the lost children, I'm sorry, the lost condition of Jabez, tears streamed down his face and he pleaded, Brethren, let us send up a united, universal, and fervent prayer to God in solemn silence for the conversion of Jabez Carey. One of the men who had been in the room related that these words hit the audience like a clap of thunder. As nearly 2,000 people bowed their heads in prayer for Jabez's salvation, the next mail the Missionary Society received from India contained a letter that reported that Jabez Carey had recently put his trust in Jesus. Are you praying for the salvation of unsaved friends or relatives? If not, start now. William Carey prayed for his son for years, even when it seemed hopeless. Ask God for whom you should pray, and then ask others to join you to pray for their salvation. Then, keep on praying, regardless of the time that passes. 1 Samuel 12, 23, As for me, I certainly will not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. Let's see. We got, oh, good. Thank you, Sergio. Don't know if you saw that, but let me uh, give him a little thumbs up. We are live. That's good. Okay. And let's see here. We have... Uh, talking about prayers. I don't have any new prayer requests this week. I didn't write any down. Once again, it's been one of those weeks where I have not been able to catch up because of last week, which was pretty wonderful. I can tell you that. The what? I got ketchup. That says, ketchup with Jesus. And then at the bottom, it says, blessed from my head to my tomatoes. To my toes. Blessed from my head to my toes. Tomatoes. Okay, there you go. So, Okay, um, we have the list of people on our prayer list that are unsaved, and uh, somebody sent me somebody that they wanted me to pray for, and I have it somewhere, but I don't have it in my head right now. But uh, uh, we'll just pray to the Lord in general and uh, to start the class. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and we ask that you uh, bless our time together. We uh, uh, are just thankful for the rain that we're getting right now. It's a real blessing to have that coming down and greening up the earth, and we thank you for the uh, afternoon thunder showers that come in Florida. Every time they come, it's just such a, a wonderful joy. And Lord, we certainly pray for these people on this list and any others that are uh, that I failed to put on the list. I know there's somebody I'm forgetting, Lord, and uh, I would pray that you would just search that out. And uh, we have these people in our lives that we desperately want to know Christ. And uh, to this point, they have not received him. They have not showed any interest at times. And Lord, we would pray that uh, you would intervene and their life in some way and give them the opportunity to think about their circumstances and uh, be willing to call on Christ for salvation and coming to you through his shed blood. Lord, we pray these things and we certainly pray for this class, that it would be conducted properly and that it would be glorifying of you. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. All right. Is that John? Good to have you here. We got John Grimaldi all the way from Hawaii visiting here. So, uh, yeah, he's moving from Hawaii to Florida, right? Right. So, here we go. It's good to have you here. We're just, just getting started. So, yeah, it's wonderful to have you here, brother. Let's see here. We have um, um, Ephesians. That's where we are. See, I'm a little off today. What? That's not unusual. I'm a little off a lot. But uh, Romans 10, 13. Romans 10, 13. What's that? Okay, Romans 10, 13. He told me to go to Romans 10, 13 before we get into our Bible class. So let's see here. There's Romans 11. Uh, Romans 10, 13. Let's see if we're... 
Yeah, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what does that have to do with waking you me said up? You were lost. Oh, 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 gotcha. I was lost and now I'm found. Gotcha. Okay. Yes, that will help with that one for certain. Okay, we are in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 3 of Ephesians after a week off, which is the first week I've taken off since, uh, well, we did have the weeks off during Christmas and I think uh, uh, Thanksgiving last year, but those were holidays. They weren't missed time. But last week I had to go to a uh, practice rehearsal for my son's wedding. And then Friday my son got married. And uh, so that was pretty wonderful in our lives. But uh, thank you, Burke, for filling in for us. because uh, And I understand that, that it was great class. So I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. It's just been one of those weeks. But um, I can tell you that this is just kind of a funny little thing about the wedding is that, you know, I started talking to them and we got to the bows and I said, um, are you willing to take this woman, blah, blah, blah. And I said my long thing and his mind was wandering. He, he wasn't, he, you know, he's obviously a little scared up there and his mind was wandering. And then when I stopped and looked at him and he shook his head, no, because he was trying to clear his head. But Faith thought he was being a jerk and saying no, and so she whacked him good, good and hard. And he goes, oh, oh, yes, I do. I went, it was very cute. I don't know how many people saw that because, you know, it was. Some of her Yeah, well, that was what that was about. So he, he uh, she woke him right up out of that kind of daze that he was in. Yeah, quit joking. And she thought he was, but he was just, he was just daydreaming. He was lost in his daydreaming. And then we got our daughter Tangerine here for just a couple more days. She's been here for the past week, and uh, she's heading. I see she's made her hair purple today. She she left the house this morning with some other color, and now it's kind of like a purple, brown, and something scarlet mix. Anyway, okay, so we're in Ephesians three verse ten, and what we'll do—that's not the beginning of a paragraph. So I'm going to go back to eight, and we'll read that, and then we'll talk about it. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay, so that's verse 10. We'll give you an analysis of that, and then we'll move on. Excuse me. Okay, 310, the words, to the intent, Paul's words, to the intent, explain the thoughts of verses 8 and 9. Concerning the grace given to Paul in relation to the sharing of the gospel to the Gentiles. It also refers to their being gathered together with the Jews to form a single, united, and whole church. It was for this as Paul says, excuse me, I, boy, I've got air that I just can't get down my esophagus. It was for this intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. That's Paul's words, that now the manifold wisdom of God may, might be made known to the church or by the church, excuse me. The word for manifold is found only here in the New Testament. It is Polo poikilos. It comes from two words. Polis, meaning much in number or many. Think of the word poly. And polikilos, meaning multicolored or variegated. It was used in the Greek Old Testament when referring to anybody? Joseph's multicolored robe. That's exactly right. The intent of this then is that many aspects of God's wisdom are revealed in the forming of the church. 
There's wisdom in how it began. There's wisdom in the selection of the people. There's wisdom in how the message is conveyed and so on. You think about how the message is conveyed. It's the simplest possible message that you, there's nothing complicated about it. There's nothing that, you know, obviously we can talk to people about Jesus for years and years and years, and we can study his Bible for eons, and we can try to persuade people that don't want to come to Christ for hours and hours. But when it comes right down to it, the gospel is the simplest possible message that you could give somebody. People know that they've sinned. All you need to do is ask them if they've lied. And I've never had a person say, well, I've had people say no, and then they admit later that they did lie. But, uh, uh, which means that they, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, they, uh, they, people know that they've done wrong. And then you just simply tell them that you need a savior and that God sent the Savior, it's Christ Jesus, and he died to pay the penalty for your sins. And then that he rose again on the third day. You can't get any simpler of a message than that. I, it's just not possible. Is that this is what God asks you to believe in order to be saved. And that shows the manifold wisdom of God. Because anything else would be complicated, it would be convoluted, you can get into all of the doctrines that you find in Buddhism and Sikhism and Hinduism and you know all the religions of the world. They all have this complicated set of parameters to get you to whatever their idea of nirvana or moksha or whatever it is, and it doesn't work. It's always a form of bondage on people in one way or another, and that is true with many sections of Christianity as well. You know, we say sections, but they're not really Christians. I'm talking about the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They complicate everything. Even the Roman Catholic Church makes everything convoluted, and they add in works and you know, you have to cooperate in your salvation, and it doesn't work that way. The manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the giving of the gospel, and that's why it's such an offense when we take and we add to the gospel. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a track with a lot of information on it. Some people need to process differently than others, but the message of the gospel itself is to be kept simple because that is what God has expected or has given us in his word, and so it's what he expects us to convey, that simple message and then add in what you need to to convince them of their state or whatever else. But um, that's, that's just it. The manifold wisdom of God right there in the gospel. As it says, there's wisdom in the selection of the people. There's wisdom in how the message is conveyed and so on. Each aspect of the construction of this heavenly temple made of individual people displays the wisdom of God in Christ the Lord. I just typed up... Uh, Revelation 19, what was it this morning? I think nine. In the past two or three days, I did a analysis of the temple of the Lord. It might even have been this morning. I can't remember. You know, I do that real early in the morning and things just kind of weave together. But that was necessary because of the exact verse that I was in from Revelation 19 demanded that we analyze that particular aspect of what is going on. The temple of the Lord that we are. Let me see if I can find that. So you, I don't want to give you something without some type of context. but. Um, Let's see here. I'm going to go back a little bit. Revelation. What was it? 19. Might have been yesterday. Let's see. Um, today. Uh, oh, I did eight today. And to her was granted the, uh, was granted, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay. That's not the verse that I was looking at. Which one is it? Um, Lord God, omnipotent reigns, his wife. Oh, yeah, it says it, it was yesterday's verse seven. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. 
Okay. Well, if you go to chapter, where is it? 21. Is it 21? Yes. It says, then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold the temple. Okay. So they're equating the new Jerusalem with being adorned as a bride. And so how does that fit in with the church, right? Because it sounds like I thought we were the bride and Paul says that we're the bride and it speaks about that. So I had to give an analysis of what it means to be the bride of Christ. For example, uh, Jesus says that we will be made something in Revelation 2 and 3. We will be pillars in the house of God, okay? And then Peter says that we will be living stones in the house of God. And Paul uses the same terminology. We are being built up into an edifice. So the New Jerusalem may be a building and it may be considered a bride, but at the same time, we are a part of the building of God. So you have to take things and be careful because some things are not literal in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, a lot of things are not literal. They are allegory or they're metaphors or things like that. And so, you know, to be dogmatic about things in the book of Revelation is, unless you're absolutely certain, which usually we cannot be, it's best to say, this is what I'm submitting, but I'm not saying that this is 100% correct because you're, you're going to be wrong on, when you do that on a lot of points. You have to be careful with Revelation. Give your best analysis based on the rest of Scripture and uh, just go with it from there. But uh, verse 8 that I typed this morning, what a great verse. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Anybody got a different verse or a different... Uh, uh, con contemplation of that verse in mind. What does yours say, uh, Burke? Okay. Uh, 198 is what I'm looking for. What does yours say? And it was given to her to clothe herself in linen, right clean for the linen. Fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So that says the exact same thing. Some of them say the righteousness of the saints. Some of them say the righteous acts of the saints. Anybody got an opinion on which is correct? No. Okay, it is not correct here. It says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We do not participate in our salvation. We do not participate in our our purification. Christ does that for us. It is the righteousness of the saints. And by the way, the word is plural in the Greek, so it would actually be the righteous, uh, righteous uh, nesses of the saints. In other words, yeah. yeah, but it's a plural. Faith, faith, faith in his, in his deeds. Faith in that's his right. Deeds. It is in his deeds. And I talk about that. This is an incorrect translation. The righteous acts of the saints is kind of Catholic. -y. Well, I'm participating in my salvation. I'm participating in my righteousness. No, it's the righteousness of the Lord. And so I explain that. And when you read the analysis, you'll say, I know that that's right, because it is not the righteous acts of the saints. Our righteous acts come after our salvation. The fine linen is given to us. It says right there that, and it was to her, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Some verses say it was given to her. That is a bestowal. It's not something that we have earned. Okay, so it well, is. First Corinthians one thirty says he has made unto us righteousness. Yes, he's made to us. That's exactly right. And I may have even cited that verse. I may not have, but um, uh, you have to be careful with things like that because once you start going off on an analysis, especially something like that, you're going to have a problem. And so uh, anyway, that'll be out in 10 days, and then you can read the commentary and disagree if you want. That's fine. But I am absolutely certain 
that it is not the righteous acts of the saints, it is the righteousnesses of the saints. Okay, it's a plural word, so it's, and well, what does that mean? Righteousnesses of the saints. Well, Edico's got her righteousness from Christ. Burke has got his righteousness from Christ. Each one of you has your righteousness from Christ, and it is the righteousnesses of the saints, each one of us individually in the group, okay? Christ deemed each one of us righteous because of what he did. God, through Christ, did. So there you go with that. That's just a little diversion there. Didn't mean to get into that, but, uh, oh, it was because we were talking about the house. That's why I got into that. Okay, so uh, the, the construction of this heavenly temple, each aspect of the construction of this heavenly temple made of individual people displays the wisdom of God in Christ the Lord. It is as if a heavenly tapestry of colors is slowly being formed into a grand and beautiful painting where all of the details come into the clearest focus. It is through this organism that his manifold wisdom is displayed, as Paul says, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is now the fourth of five times that Paul has mentioned the epouranios, or heavenly realms. Within the sphere of these, or sphere of these heavenly realms, there are principalities and there are powers, that's Paul's words once again, which are viewing what goes on in the material creation. But in particular, their attention is directed to God's working in the plan of redemption. How do we know that? Because it says in, is it Peter that says even angels long to look into these things? Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Peter. Okay, that's right. Um, so it, we know that the heavenly realms are looking down on what God has done, and they are amazed at how God has brought about the plan of redemption, the plan of salvation, how he has worked these things out into what he is doing. You know, I, I just can't wait. I'm talking to several people in the past day about uh, what it's going to be like when we go to glory. I was talking to Burke about it before we started. You know, we've got savants in the world. A savant can do incredible things. They may not be able to do other things because their mind is so preoccupied with music, but they can pick up an instrument that they've never heard before, and they can play that instrument perfectly. And you get savants that know all kinds of numbers. They, they, they can do anything with numbers. You get them that have perfect memories. They can read a book and 10 years later tell you what is on line seven of page 673 of the book that they read. They, uh, savants have many, many different capabilities. And like I said, quite often other areas of their life are, are uh, we'll use the word retarded. They're kept back because this part of their brain is working so actively. But um, uh, the fact is that they can do those things with their mind, which means that our minds are capable of doing those things. And our brains are being kept back, or the, you know, the word retarded is the only word I can think, in those areas that the other people's areas are open to. But imagine what it's going to be like when we are living in a body where our minds can do things that we can't even comprehend right now. It's going to be incredible. It's, it's just going to be astonishing what it's like. And this is what God has promised. We're going to be in bodies that are no longer infected with sin. And if it's true, and it, it certainly is a very good analysis, uh, I've heard it before by uh, several scientists, is that Adam would have been, you know, obviously very, very... Um, close to the perfection of creation. Obviously, he fell, but he was at this pinnacle of, of, you know, being a prime human being. And we have devolved in humanity to the point where we are now. So it is not that we have evolved into more perfect beings, as the evolutionary model says. It's exactly the opposite, is that our DNA is breaking down. 
And there's a point where our DNA will no longer be able to sustain humanity. It's breaking down to such a point that it will eventually not exist where we can procreate, where we can do certain things because our DNA is so corrupted. Yes? Yeah, there's also a study out about that. Very same subject where serotonin levels in the head are Serotonin, he said, they, they can't hear you, so I got to repeat what you said. He said that there are studies that uh, say that the serotonin levels are actually diminishing in our heads and things like that. So exactly, is that our, our bodies will eventually not be able to continue. And so there is a redemptive plan, and within that redemptive plan, God is taking advantage of all of the abilities of humans at this point. And that's because there's a point where it wouldn't be worth doing anymore. Okay, and so you can see that God's plan is perfect in this. He's redeeming people now, and those people will be redeemed into perfect bodies that will be able to do things we can't even imagine. We shall know as we are yeah, we shall know as we are known, is what Burke said. And so it's, it's a wonderful thing to contemplate. We have this promise. It is a sure promise. And, uh, uh, you know, that's where my hope is. It's not in this world. It's not in anything, you know, if... Uh, People want to be movie stars and be beautiful. That's going to last a few years, and they're going to start, you know, not being beautiful anymore. And if that's where your hope is, it's not a very good hope. You know, some people have hope in a lot of money, and then the stock market collapses, and out the 14th floor of the building they go, because that's where their hope was. And there's just nothing in this world that is worth clinging on to. Nothing. If you think about what Christ has offered, there's everything waiting ahead. So good stuff there. Um, These angels in the heavenly realms are looking at what God is doing and they're saying what he has done is perfect and it's coming out exactly as it should. Okay. God has selected a group of people from the beginning, all the way at the beginning, by which he would reveal himself to the world. There was one select line of chosen people and all others were left unattended to as far as special revelation is concerned. And that's, you know, you can even infer that from the Genesis 5 account where it gives the name of Adam and then Seth and then it gives the name of the first 10 people right down to Noah. And they are the line that God was using to bring his revelation into the world. And then what did he do? You know, I'm sure you've, if you've seen the Genesis sermon on that, you know that those 10 names form a picture of the coming Christ. Uh, Adam is man, Seth is um, appointed, and then you've got each name has a meaning, and those 10 names put together into a sentence give you the gospel, basically. Christ came down, and he was appointed to uh, do these things. In, in other words, the gospel message is revealed in those. So even in selecting certain people within that line, he has given us hints at the plan of redemption. And this is also the case with other names all the way through the Bible. They all are being used by God in a special way to show us what God is doing. And we see that in the typology in the sermons as well. What is it? 20, we're in 20 next week. I think it's 21. I'm really excited to get there because chapter 21 is just so Christological. In Deuteronomy, you wouldn't expect a lot of Christological passages, but the whole chapter is just filled with it. Um, And that's what God is doing. He's taking these things and he's showing us what he's going to do in redemptive history. And he is doing it in reality in human people as well. He's redeeming us based on those typological patterns. We are participating in the fulfillment of that typology. So it's, it's astonishing what God is doing. Um, Burke was saying before the class that he emailed me asking a question about the name Adam. And it sounds like a really easy thing to answer. Oh, you know, Adam. And, but the word in Hebrew, Adam, is translated by some 
translations as Adam and some as man, because they both mean exactly the same thing. So you have Ha-Adam is the man. And so you would think that they would translate it as the man, but it'll say that um, some translations will say the Lord God brought um, the wife or the woman to the man, and they'll say, they'll translate it as brought it to Adam, using it as a name. And so he asked some questions about that. He said, why are they doing this? And how do I know which is right? And my answer was, it was my typical football punt, because there's, there's no way to really define that. It's, I say it's translator's preference, okay? The translator decides when he wants to use the term the man and when he wants to simply say Adam, because it can be either, it can mean either. But if you go to the New Testament, at times you'll see Adam mentioned. And when it's mentioned the name Adam, then you probably would be wise to take the name from the New Testament and use that in the Old Testament verse that's being cited, because Paul will say the first man, Adam. And so you might want to use where he's citing that verse, the word Adam. It's not incorrect to say the man, but the point is that we have this word that is so complicated that you can get lost on a single study of a single word, which can have different meanings, and why do people choose what they do, etc. So there you go with that. It's just the the word is never-ending, and people that think that they have it all figured out don't. That's all there is to it. It is just way, way beyond us. And, you know, when you think you've got, oh, I've got all of this information out of this part of it, then there's a macro picture that you completely overlooked or a chiasm that might be in that passage or something. Oh, it's a wonderful word. Anyway, so these people were left unattended to as far as special revelation is concerned, meaning the non-people, the people not mentioned in the Bible, the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Certainly, this is referring to both good and bad entities, as can be seen from many passages of Scripture. But Job 1.6 is sufficient to demonstrate this, viewed what God was doing. They were aware of the writing of the prophets and knew that God was doing something, but they could not deduce what it was. Job 1.6 is where it speaks of Satan entering into the presence of the, um, uh, the uh, sons of God. Okay, and let me go, take you there. Just so I don't want to skip over a verse without giving it to you. So um, Job is before that. Okay. We're going to go to Job 1.6. And once again, I've talked about this in other uh, uh, studies, but when, when I read this, it is not speaking about angels, okay? Get that straight, and if you want the sermon, I can quote it to you. I can give you the uh, link to it. But now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, a bad angel, obviously, also came among them, okay? So the sons of God in that passage is speaking of human beings. It is not speaking of angels, okay? Bene ha Elohim is speaking of human beings. Okay, so the sons of God are there and the devil comes in among them. So that's what I was talking about there. Um, uh, that's sufficient to demonstrate the point that good and bad angels are viewing what God is doing, but they're unaware of the writing of the prophets, or even if they are aware, they... Uh, I'm sorry, they were aware of the writings of the prophets, and they knew that God was doing something, but they could not deduce what it was. This is seen, for example, and I think the verse that I asked you about a minute ago is what I'm going to say right now. It's in 1 Peter, let's see here, we've got to go, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 12. I told myself to refer to it, so that might be what I was asking about. 1 Peter 1, yes, it says, To them was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering, the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. They have the writings, 
They understand what the writings say, but they just don't know what is being conveyed in those writings. And that's the same thing as the the um, prophets that wrote them. It says that they turned around, they wrote these things, and then they searched out what they had written, trying to figure it out, wanting to know about what this is speaking of. But it was kept from them because God has a plan and it is being slowly and progressively revealed. And so that's what, how he has used his wisdom to demonstrate his omnipotence and his omniscience in what he is, so that we can understand that in what he is doing. So in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9, Paul continues with this thought by saying that he and the other apostles have been made a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. The heavenly beings watched the apostles, curiously studying what they were doing in order to see how God's wisdom would be revealed through them. A heavenly theater has been set to view this worldly spectacle. Now, in this new dispensation known as the church age, the absolute marvel and majesty of the wisdom of God has been put on full display. It's just unbelievable what God is doing and how he is doing it. So he's keeping things from those who aren't to know until the time it's to be revealed. And then once it's revealed, everybody can participate in it. They can have a knowledge of it and they can use that to build on other things that are as yet not revealed. Like I said, the book of Revelation is given to us, but we don't know what it is because the time has not yet come. So we can only speculate on what God is saying about this and about this and about this. Um, when we get into uh, Mystery Babylon, for example. I feel confident that it is Rome, okay? And there's no doubt that Rome is a part of it because Daniel 9 makes that explicit, Daniel 9, 27. But that doesn't mean that that is the final answer to what is being portrayed in the book of Revelation. So all I can do is say that I believe this. This is how I'm presenting it to you. I could be wrong, okay? But Rome certainly has a large part in the end times, whether that is actually, you know, Mystery Babylon is Rome and the Vatican. I think it is, but I could be wrong. We'll find out at some point in the future. But for now, we can only look forward and we can speculate. Okay, so the question to be asked is, what is it about the church that demonstrates this manifold wisdom of God? That would be our question based on what Paul has just said. The answer is that when all of heaven thought God was doing a single thing through a single group of people and which he would have a very limited effect on humanity, it turned out that what he had done was of unlimited scope in regards to the people of the world. There are people that watch the sermons from India. There are people that watch the sermons from the Philippines. There are people that watch it from you know, wherever. And I'll get an email once in a while and I'll never heard from this person before. And they'll say, thank you for this. You know, I, I learned something about that. And I'll think, you know, it's just amazing that God is getting his word out to the whole world. And that this is just a little church with, you know, not that many views on YouTube, but the gospel has gotten out through missionaries going overseas. It's gotten out through people, you know, just handing out tracts and it gets out and somebody might put it in his pocket and get on an airplane to fly back to Dubai. And on the way to Dubai, he hears the gospel and comes to Christ. It is unlimited in scope. It's not just this little group of people in the Middle East that were disobedient and that God's plans ended with them when they were cut off. Okay, that's not it. And then come to find out they're not cut off after all, as the church has been incorrectly deducing for the past 1900 years. Oh, the Jews are out and the church has replaced them. That's not it at all. They are a part of what God is doing, but they have been set aside for disobedience, exactly as the Bible said would take place. 
The last of the three Leviticus 26 sermons will show you that. If you have the time, go watch it and you'll understand. The, there is a purpose for those people in the future. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. The angel says this, this message of this birth is for all people. All people. And then they lit up the sky. And these, these shepherds says, oh, we got to go tell. We got to go see and we got to go tell. That's right. What he said was that the whole world is to know this message. In Luke 2, it said that the angels came and this message is good news for all people. And then what did the people do? They went out and they started to tell the good news. They only did it in Israel, obviously, but eventually that good news has been published in Bibles and it is all over the world now. It's everywhere. So, you know, there, I can't think of a place on the, the planet where they don't have the Bible or they don't have somebody working on the Bible in their language right now. So it's, it's a wonderful thing that God is doing. Okay, so let's see here. Um, the single selected line that we were talking about a minute ago, that single group of people was set apart unto God while all of the other people of the world went about making up their own religions and falling further and further away from God. And yet, through Jesus Christ, all of these who are far away have been brought near through his blood. The fact that both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God in exactly the same way with exactly the same gospel message is the most astonishing thing of all. None of those in the heavenly realms could have even guessed at it, and yet it was promised in the very writings of God through the Jewish people. He says it in Isaiah. He says, it's too small of a thing for me to save the uh, lost people of Israel. He says, I'm going to include the Gentiles in it. That's a Charlie Garrett paraphrase, but that's basically what's going on right there. Okay, life application. The Bible gave all the necessary information for those who read it to know what was promised, but it did not give the specifics of how it would come about. Only in Christ do the scriptures make any sense at all. We should now cherish those words even more when we see what was once concealed but has now been revealed through Christ. We should be more and more and more astonished at the marvelous workings of God in human history. That's why we pick up the Bible, we read it, and we see what's going on and what God has hidden in there. It ought to be just a source of rejoicing in us. But the fact is that we can only rejoice in it if we pick it up and we read it. Otherwise, you know, it just... I'll say something in the sermon on Sunday is that there are particular doctrines in the Bible that everybody is a specialist at. Every single person that you talk to about it's got their own opinion and they're going to be dogmatic and they're going to beat their opinion over your head, whether you like it or not, when they don't know anything in the rest of the Bible. And that's a real shame because it means they don't even know what they're talking about in that particular doctrine because you have to take all of the biblical disciplines together. You have to have a form a form of understanding of all of these doctrines in order to make a decision about any particular doctrine. It would be unwise to do otherwise, but that's what a lot of people do. I'll mention that on Sunday. Okay, we're in verse 311 now. It says, uh, 311, according to the eternal purpose in which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, 311. The verses of this paragraph are a continuous thought and should be kept in that context. To fully grasp what is said here, uniting with the previous verse will help. Okay, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
the wisdom of God, Paul's words, the wisdom of God is made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places by what is occurring in the building of the church. Paul now states that this wisdom of God is according to the eternal purpose of God. The idea is that from the eternal state itself, God had a plan to reconcile all things to himself. That plan is being worked out in the stream of time which he created. Now, what that means is, is that God is in the eternal state. Before God created the universe, there was no time, there was no space, and there was no matter. Okay, if you have time, you have space and matter. Without space and matter, you can't have time because this is a book, okay, and it's within space. It's got space within it. The molecules inside of it are, you know, a lot of things banging around with each other. But without this, you wouldn't have anything to count time. This is getting old, right? And you got that? If this didn't exist, there would be no time to count things getting old. So you have to have time if you have space and matter. You have to have space if you have time and matter, and you have to have matter if you have time and space. All three had to occur at exactly the same instant. Having said that, because God created those things, it's quite evident from logic itself, but we read it in Genesis chapter 1, God created those things. That means that God is not bound by those things. He has no uh, material nature. He is not bound by time, and space does not affect him. Okay? He is everywhere at all times. He's omnipresent, okay? And because everything was created by him, that means he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Because all power that exists came from him, he is greater than all the power that exists, okay? And he is all-knowing because everything that exists had to be put together by God, and that shows that he knows everything that has happened and ever will happen, okay? So, it says the wisdom of God is made known to the, where was that, um, uh, Okay, uh, there it is. The idea is from the eternal state itself, God had a plan to reconcile all things to himself. So here is God before he created anything. This is the eternal state. He knew everything that would happen within a stream of time. And so he knew that Adam would be created. He knew that Adam would fall. And so when people give you an, a, a question, well, why do bad things happen in the world? Why did Adam fall? Why did God allow this to happen? God knew that this was going to happen before he ever created anything. And he saw this as the most optimum way of bringing glory to himself while still being able to interact with his creatures. The introduction of sin, the sending of Christ to the cross, Revelation 13, verse 8, everything was known to God before he did it, okay? There is no other pattern that he could have done that would have been more perfect. Okay, so when somebody asks that question, all you need to do is say that whatever else happened would have been worse. It would not have been as perfect as what is happening right now. So when we see pain in the world, when we see suffering, when we see death and sorrow, when we see happiness and joy, when we see people cheating on their husbands, all of those things, it would have been far worse in any other circumstance than what we have right now. This is the optimal circumstance for people to come to God in the way that he determined so that we can fellowship with him. Our sin will be dealt with by God, and he did it in Jesus Christ. So if you think about it from that perspective, and you look at all of the bad things that are happening in the world, whether it's to you personally, or to the people in Indonesia, or whatever gets you down for the day, just understand that God has a plan that existed before he created, knowing that that bad thing would happen, and yet he felt it was of value to allow it to happen in order for his plan to come about. Everybody got that? I hope I said that 
well enough where you understand that everything is under God's control. Nothing is out of his control, even if it's out of our control, which, you know, what does that mean when we say, oh, God must be out of control? It means that we are taking the place of God. We are saying that God cannot be in control because my life is out of control. It doesn't work that way. God is in control even when things are out of control for us. We need to accept that and we need to hold on to it. And we need to uh, be sure that we don't impute wrongdoing to God in the process. Um, it's probably, you know, one girl I know, her um, daughter died, a girl I went to high school with, and she had on Facebook for a long time, it's okay to be angry with God, okay? And that's probably true because, you know, I mean, you can see almost anger coming out of some of the people in the psalmist, in the Psalms writing to God about what's going on in their life. And I, God doesn't tell us we can't express our emotions, but we should not impute wrongdoing to God in our anger. That's the main thing that we need to not do is say, God is out of control. God has done wrong, et cetera, et cetera. We need to just say, God, I'm angry because this is affecting me personally, but I understand that it's a part of your plan and I'm going to accept it. So whatever, angry, sad, whatever. Okay. What we see is random and often even chaotic is completely known to God. It is further not out of control at all. I remember when I was just you know, sitting there in my shop. This is before I'd really gotten into any theology at all. I had read the Bible quite a few times by then, but I remember on uh, September 11th of 2001, and I was watching the TV. My friend said, oh, an airplane just flew into the uh, World Trade Center, and he said, you got to go watch it. And I turned on the TV, and I was sitting there watching it. And then while I'm sitting there watching the second plane flies into a building, and I thought, man, that's terrible. You know, and at that point, it didn't really affect me that much. But when I saw the building going down, 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 and thinking of all the people inside of there, and they're just scrunched, and I thought, how is he going to sort this out? And then I thought, what a stupid thought. He knows everything that's going on. This isn't hard for God to sort out. But your mind gets so overwhelmed with the circumstances that you're participating in at the moment that you, you, you just can't process it. But that is not the case with God. God knows every atom of every person that ever existed, and he, uh, it's just temporary flesh. When we die, it's going to be spread all over the world in some way or another, and somebody else will take up their existence after us, etc., until God is done with the plan. Nothing is out of his control, even if our minds can't process it. If it seems bigger than us, it's because it is, okay? An example of this is Joseph being sold by his brothers. They intended evil. And Joseph certainly did not understand his plight, okay? That's made evident in the text itself, but we can know that. But God had already figured it into the plan. Each step is a part of the eternal, Paul's words, the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything that happened to Joseph. You know, he gets taken into this house and the guy says, this guy is a great worker, he's honest. He's, you know, next thing you know, he's being thrown into prison for being accused of something he didn't do. And he's probably thinking, what is going on? You know, if it was me, I'd be like, what's going on, Lord? But at the same time, Joseph kept his cool. He kept his faith in the Lord despite his circumstances. And that is what God asks us to do, is to keep our minds on the Lord through everything. I was uh, emailing with a friend. I won't give any of the details, but uh, he, you know, he's had, uh, you know, just a difficult time. He's almost alone in his Christianity and his family has almost rejected him, and yet he understands that God is in control. 
And I'm so proud of him for that because, you know, it, there are people that are just completely isolated because of their faith in Christ. And the family probably thinks he's the one that's in a cult, right? You know, when you're in a cult, you think that you're on top of the world and everything is fine. And, you know, next thing you know, you're being read about in the obituaries. Well, that's not what faith in Christ is. Faith in Christ is on a completely different level than that. And we need to hold fast to that. We need to understand that the world doesn't understand our faith in Christ. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of this guy for being able to, despite his children and his family and, you know, the, the nation in which he lives, which has just completely gone over the deep end, and yet he's still able to understand that God is in control. Doesn't make it any easier on him, don't get me wrong. I mean, but keep that faith in your mind at all times. That's the main thing. Everything that we do that is of faith will be rewarded by the Lord. Everything. God will not overlook it, even if we don't understand. Okay? Each step, I'll read that again, is a part of the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the focal point between the eternal state and what occurs in the stream of time. The eternal God never will come out of the eternal state. He is there. He is not a part of what he has created. It is separate from himself, and yet we can say he is imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, imminent. It means that he is active in what's going on, but he's not a part of it. So if you want to think about God's actions within his creation, you can think of a painter painting. The painting isn't, it's being affected by him, but at the same time, the painter is not a part of the painting. Okay, now that's obviously an analogy. God is not sitting here actively doing things, but he has created these things in a way that they come out as they do. He is in the eternal realm. He is not affected by the realm that we're in. He created it. He's not affected by it. But in Christ, because he entered into humanity through Christ, Christ is the focal point between that eternal realm and this temporal realm. Everything that goes on in relation to God between those two is because of Jesus Christ everything, okay? He is that point for us to understand the unseen and unknowable God, and he is the one that will reveal that God to us for all eternity. And you think, you know, if you, if you think about how massive the thought of eternity is, you know, I get tired just thinking about working for another 15 years or something. How old am I? 50? I'll be 57, so 67. We'll say 20 years. I'll be 77 years old. Okay. I get tired of thinking of that, and someday I'm going to kick the bucket and I'll be gone, okay? But it's almost wearying thinking about the years I have ahead of me, okay? How can I think about the eternal state? Well, you know, our bodies that we have now aren't geared for an eternal state. They're geared for a limited amount of time, and we get sick of it, and then we're happy to go, okay? But if you think about, if we wanted to explore every single thing just in our own circle, our own life, and to know everything that happened with every single person that we ever interacted with, that would take a long, long, long time. Now multiply that times 7 billion people. Now multiply that times everything that goes on all over the universe forever and ever since God created. And we want to know everything about everything. It'd go on, and it'd go on, and it'll go on forever. We'll never get tired of learning. We'll never get tired of understanding what God has done and who he is. It'll never happen. But right now, we just think of our own situation looking forward, and we get wearied out by it. I mean, maybe you don't, but I do. I think about, you know, I got to go cut that 
lawn again next week. I just cut it yesterday, and I got and I get tired just thinking about what lies ahead. Did you feel that way when you were doing? Yeah, Tom's shaking his head. He was a lawn guy. That's what he did. And the grass never stops growing. Everything just keeps going in life. You got to cut this tree. You got to do that. You got to do one thing. Your clothes get dirty. You got to wash them every Friday, which is I do three or four loads of laundry every Friday. Got to make the bed before Hidako gets home and, you know, or she's going to think I'm doing nothing all day. So, you know, I mean, it, it just is wearying. And that's what Solomon speaks about in the book of Ecclesiastes. By the time you get done with it, you think, oh, why do we even want to go on? But then he introduces things that make you want to go on. And it's because he's making contrasts between life under the sun, this wearying life that we have, and life under the heavens, this beautiful life that he promises. And if you can look at Ecclesiastes from that perspective, life under the heavens contrasted with life under the sun, you'll understand that God has a better purpose than what we have right now in this life. Okay, read that again. Jesus is the focal point between the eternal state and what occurs in the stream of time. This is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the rock which followed Israel was Christ. He has always been there working out his plan. However, the word for which he accomplished carries a sense of ambiguity. It could mean either being ordained or it could be worked out. I'll read that again so you understand it. However, the word for which he accomplished could mean either ordained, he accomplished it, he ordained it, or which he accomplished is being worked out. In other words, scholars debate whether this is saying that God's eternal purpose was ordained in Christ Jesus or whether it is being worked out in Christ Jesus. The latter is probably the true sense. It is being worked out in Christ Jesus. God's purpose was ordained from the eternal state. Before he created anything, before he entered into the stream of humanity, in the person of Jesus, before Jesus went back in time to the Garden of Eden and talked to Adam and Eve, and before any of those other things happened, God's purpose was ordained in that eternal state. And then he's working those things out in Christ Jesus. Yes, I know what I said probably needs to be explained. I do not believe in the term the pre-incarnate Christ. Everybody uses it. You'll read a thousand books that include that. There's that there is a manifestation of Christ in the Bible. It's very evident that the Lord Jehovah, it's very clear that he came up to Abraham. He's one of the three men that came up to Abraham when Abraham was there. It says the Lord. It is L-O-R-D, all capital Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, Jehovah, okay? And so people will say that was a pre-incarnate uh, visitation of God in Christ. I do not believe that. I do not believe that it is pre-incarnate because that would be a logical contradiction. He is incarnate before he's incarnate. That doesn't make any sense. He is the eternal Christ. And that means that he was incarnate in Mary, and then he is the master of time and space. Jesus appeared in buildings all of a sudden when the 11 disciples were there, and then he was out. He did things that we cannot do. He certainly can go through time. And however he did it, he appeared in his own genealogy. This is Charlie Garrett doctrine here, okay? I don't want you to be, uh, you know, thinking, well, what's that guy talking about? This is what I believe, okay? If you don't believe it, that's fine. But I believe that Christ is the one that was with them in the Garden of Eden. I believe that Christ is the one that appeared with Abraham. It is him. It is him. After the incarnation, he went back into the stream of time. 
How that works out, I don't know. You can watch the movies on time travel and they, they do things that are very interesting. And you can say, I never thought of that. Well, people can think things up. And so you see somebody that goes back in time and then he ends up in his own picture from 150 years earlier. And you're like, oh, isn't that cool? Something like that. I just think it is a logical contradiction to use the term pre-incarnate Christ. It, it, it does not work. The eternal Christ and however he did it, he did it. Okay, he wrestled with his great, 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 great grandfather, whatever, however many greats it is, Jacob. He is the one that renamed him Israel. Jesus Christ is the one who did that. Now, people argue with me, well, he couldn't have been after the cross because then he would have had, uh, you know, the nails in his whatever. Okay, maybe he did. And maybe they recognize that. I have no idea. Maybe when Jacob meets Christ someday and he says, you know, I can't believe you had those cross. I don't know. I'm not here to debate those smaller issues. I am here to say that I believe that Christ is the one that actually showed up in his own genealogy, entering into, or not genealogy, but his own uh, um, history, entering into contact with people that, would, that he would eventually issue from, okay? Could be wrong, but that's just the way I believe it, because I think the opposite is, is not logical at all. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, Yes, Christ means, I'll read this again. In other words, scholars debate whether this is saying that God's eternal purpose was ordained in Christ Jesus or whether it was being worked out in Christ Jesus. The latter is probably the true sense. God's purpose was ordained from the eternal state, from it. However, Christ is the means by which all was created and by which all is being worked out. This seems the most likely because the word for purpose is prosthesis. It means a setting forth. It is the word used to indicate the showbread, the consecrated bread of the temple in Jerusalem, such as in Matthew 12, verse 4. What is occurring is according to God's presentation of his eternal purpose, as if the setting forth of the showbread. Here is the bread. I'm setting this forth for the week. Okay, same thing. Here is what I am doing. I'm setting it forth in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus the Lord, who is God is the one to work out that purpose within the stream of time. Life application, there may seem to be random and even chaotic events in the world around us, but God has it all under control. Do not lose heart if the world continues to come against you. God's plan includes your eternal security if you are in Christ Jesus the Lord. Yes, if this is the first time you've watched one of these videos, I believe in eternal security. I do not believe that a person can lose his salvation. That is contrary to the Bible. It is contrary to the nature of God. It is contrary to the word of God being spoken forth. When God makes an edict, it is an eternal edict. When he says, I am going to save somebody, it is an eternal decree. When he says, I'm going to send Christ to the cross, that is an eternal decree. It will happen. It's not that it might happen. It will happen. When God saves a person, it is an eternal decree of God. It will not be reneged on. God is not like man. We renege on all kinds of things, okay? God will never do that. If we suffer because of our choices in this life, it does not negate God's faithfulness. If we walk away from God, he will not walk away from us. That is made evident in the uh, poem that uh, what um, Paul writes in the middle of, I think it's 1 Timothy. He gives you a poem, and it makes it evident there. But you have to take it in context because people will say, see, that says you can lose your salvation when it doesn't say that at all. Let me see if I can find this really. Um, 
no, that's not the one I want. That's uh, 1 Timothy. Let's see here. Oh, I'm thinking of um, what John says. If we are faithless, he no, that's, it's got to be Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains. There it is. Um, this is a faithful saying. This is 2 Timothy, not 1 Timothy. If you look at 1 and 2 Timothy, they both hinge on a poem right in the middle of them. He does a certain number of chapters, he puts a poem, and then he does the same number of chapters afterwards. Beautiful. Anyway, he does this in uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we also shall live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And people say, see, you can lose your salvation. That is not what that's speaking about at all. If we have come to Christ, we have not denied him. We may deny him later, but he's already taken care of that with the first one. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And then in verse 13, he takes care of it a second time by saying, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And when you are in Christ, you are in Christ. You are a part of Christ. He cannot deny himself. Eternal salvation is written all over those verses, and people focus on the middle part of it, and they say, see, you can lose your salvation. They have taken it completely out of the intended context. You cannot lose your salvation. I see that John has got that. He's back there shaking his head. Uh, very impressed, good sir. Okay, let's see here. Um, oh, where was I? I'm going into another verse now. We, the what? Hebrews 1, he is, verse 2. Oh, yes. Hebrews 1, verse 2. You want me to read that? Okay. Yeah. 1 verse 2 says, okay, I'll read 1 because it's all one sentence here. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He did. He's the creator. That's right. The Son is, the, son is the creator. He is the vehicle. You could, and you know, I, I, I don't like using that word, but he is the vehicle by which God creates. Yes. Absolutely. He just said, wouldn't he put himself into what he has done? And yes, he has done it through Christ Jesus. Yeah. He has entered into his creation in order to do these things. He is the word of God. And Paul makes that explicit in Colossians 1. Absolutely. Right in Colossians, let me read that to you there. Colossians 1. Uh, this is speaking of Christ, okay? And he also does it in John 1. I mean, right at the beginning of the epistle, he does it. But in Colossians chapter 1, Christ is the one who reveals what God is doing. Okay, here it is. He, Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Not the firstborn of creation. He is over all creation. It's a different word. There's two different words that could have been used. The word that he uses does not mean a created being. It means non-created being, okay? If you take that, okay, here's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven. This is Jesus. By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things, once again, right back to Hebrews chapter 1, all things consist. Everything hinges on Jesus Christ. God alone, it, it, he had to do these things through Christ in order for us to understand what is going on in the creation. Everything is done through Jesus Christ, including the 
redemptive process, the salvific process. Everything is about Jesus Christ. Everything. I don't want to get my uh, words spoken wrong because when you get into talking about things like this, you say one wrong word and all of a sudden you're, you're, you've devolved from what is correct. But he is the one by whom God has done all of these things. It says, in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, everything. He has preeminence in everything that God has done because he is fully God and he is fully man. He is the one that makes God available to us and makes God understandable to us. So, okay, we're in uh, 312 and we got plenty of time. Let's see here, 312. Okay, I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to read this. Um, let's see. Yeah, I'm going to have to read a couple verses to keep it because it's still a, one long sentence. I'm going to go back to 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Okay, 3.12. The words in this verse are similar to verse 2.18, which said, For through him we have both access by one spirit to the Father. Paul is bringing the practical application of what has occurred back into focus. In 2.18, he was speaking of the fact that Gentiles, along with Jews, both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now he simply says, we, Jew and Gentile, we. He has been describing the mystery which defines his apostleship, which is bringing in of the Gentiles to God through the work of Christ. It is the, as he says, the fellowship of the mystery that he spoke of in verse 9. Together, both Jew and Gentile are joined into one fellowship. In this state, we, plural, we, Paul says, have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The Greek word for boldness indicates especially a boldness of speech. The boldness then surely includes several aspects. One, boldness to call on Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, for salvation. God has presented Jesus. He has said that this is my means of reconciliation back to me for humanity. And so we can have boldness in saying, I call on Jesus. I ask him to forgive me of my sins because he died in place of my sins. Okay. I believe that he was buried. He was fully, completely dead, and he raised on the third day, according to Scripture, proving that he is God. Okay? We have that boldness. And then two, boldness to make our prayers known to God through him, not fearing that they will be hindered or obstructed in any way. I, I have, in the past month, I've probably gotten... Many. I, I don't want to even speculate on how many because I'll be exaggerating if I say, you know, but a lot of emails on the from people that are in Catholicism, that have family in Catholicism, etc., etc., or that, you know, have friends that are in Catholicism. I can't tell you how many times. And almost always they bring up the doctrine of prayers to Mary, prayers to the saints. Why would you do that? Christ, it says right in the Bible, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one. Mary is dead, despite what the Catholic Church says, which is a very late doctrine. It was only uh, entered into the canon of the church in like the 1800s, okay? Mary is dead. She is waiting for the call of her Savior. The saints are dead, 
and they're not at all what the Catholic Church speaks of. The Catholic Church speaks of a certain number of people that were sanctified by the Catholic Church. That has nothing to do with the saints at all. The saints are those who believe in Jesus Christ and have been saved by Jesus Christ, okay? And it, it's not tedious to answer these emails, but it's frustrating to think that people have been so duped into believing things that we have the boldness to go through Christ. It says right there in the book of Hebrews, we have the boldness to enter into the throne of God and to ask him for these things because he sent Christ to allow us to do that. And that's paraphrase. I mean, that's just me saying what it says. It's not quoting it. But we have Christ who allows these things to happen. I don't understand how people can, can trade that away for nothingness, for absolute nothingness. Boldness to make our prayers known to God through him, meaning Christ. Once again, if Christ is God, then he is outside of time and space. He hears my prayers right now as much as he heard Paul's prayers 2,000 years ago. They're all heard by Christ. Every prayer that is uttered by every single person on this planet funnels through Christ without any hindrance and without any, you know, overlapping. You, you don't have any trunk calls that got misdirected, nothing like that. Everything goes directly to God through Jesus. Not, yeah, absolutely. Okay. They will not be hindered or obstructed in any way. And then we have boldness three, to speak of the marvelous riches of Christ to others. Well, that's conditional. It is conditional on the fact that you are willing to do so. It's conditional on the fact that you are willing to learn how to do so. It's conditional on the fact that you are even willing to get out and do it. Okay. If you're not willing to do those things, it's not going to happen, but we can do it. We have the boldness to speak of the marvelous riches of Christ to others. If we know that Christ died for us, then why would we keep that from ourselves? Okay, one thing I don't do is I do not um, uh, talk to people while they're working. They're being paid. It is robbing an employer to talk to somebody about the gospel. But I had a FedEx sticker on my car, I'm sorry, on the door when I came here on Sunday. Okay, I went to the tracking number to try to find it, and it's not registered. I called my brother who's in FedEx, and I said, can you help track this thing? I don't want it to get sent back or whatever, because it's for my son. And uh, he couldn't find it either, couldn't, because right now FedEx is ground and it's parcel or whatever. You know, there's two FedExes, and they don't really coordinate for some reason. So he couldn't figure this out. So I, uh, I'm kind of wondering about it, and I came in today with that thing, and I was going to sign it and just put it on the door. And lo and behold, what happens is I'm in back cleaning, cleaning the bathrooms, and I come out, and there's a sticker on the door. I missed the guy, and I'm like, oh, no. Okay? And so, I know. So I, I'm, I'm freaked out about it, and I thought, what am I going to do? Because I don't want this thing to not get to us. You know, somebody, whatever it is, somebody spent money to get something to my son, and it needs to get to him, and I don't want them to lose on that. So, so I walked outside, and I looked around, and there's FedEx right down the road. So I got in the truck as quick as I could. I got, and I even pulled in front of him in case he thought I'm going to pull away. I wouldn't let him because he was in the truck at the time. So I pulled in front of him and I got out and there's a guy in there. And I said, listen, I'm, I've got this and I don't know what to do. And I, I couldn't find the track. He said, well, it's okay. Let me check. And he says, oh, I put one on there, but I didn't do it today. He says, I know who has it. Willie. And I said, my Willie? He said, you're Willie? I said, my Willie. I've known Willie for 20 years. He used to work for RPS Datatron or something, which RPS, remembered RPS was, and then it was bought out by FedEx, and 
he delivered when I was at the wastewater plant in Golfgate 20 some years ago. Oh, so anyway, he says, let me call Willie. He calls Willie and he says, Willie, where's this guy's package? He says, oh, I just took it to his beautiful wife. Did you give him mangoes? <laughs> you okay, well, whatever. If he comes, you give him mangoes. He's such a great guy. Willie is wonderful. Anyway, he was willing to go out there and take that to make sure that we got it. So Willie did that. And then I, I thanked this guy very much. And I said, you know, have a great day. And then I thought, I'm still parked in front of him. He can't get by me. I'm not going to waste his time. But what did I do? I got a track out of the Bible in the car. And I said, here, at least I can do that. I'm not robbing him of any of his employer's time because it's not right to do that. Okay, if he's on his break, that's fine. Talk to him if he wants to. But, you know, it's not right to take people away from their employer. So I gave him a track and I said, here, I want you to read this. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And so if you are boldness to speak of the marvelous riches of Christ to others, but as I said, that's conditional, please do it. And then for boldness to proclaim our salvation, understanding that it is an accomplished fact. If you want a good witness for somebody while you're witnessing to them, use yourself. I know that I am saved. I know that I'm going to heaven. I have no doubt about it. If you ask people, do you, how do you know if you're going to go to heaven? They'll always say, well, I've been a pretty good guy, or I've done this, or I've done that. I didn't ask that. How do you know that you're going to heaven? How can you be sure? Well, I'm hoping the best for it. You don't have to hope. You don't have to hope. And I'm talking about in a dubious sense. I'm saying you can know 100% for sure that you are going to heaven because Christ died for you. You give them the gospel and then they receive the gospel and they say, I can't believe it. Jesus died for me. I accept that. And then you say, the next time somebody comes up to you and asks, why are you going to heaven? All you need to say is because Christ died for my sins. Boldness to proclaim our salvation. It's not a maybe. It is a 100% positive understanding that it is an accomplished fact. The second, that of unhindered prayer life is probably where the stress most fully lies, though. This is because of the next words, and access with confidence. Let me read you the whole verse so you know what I'm talking about. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. I gave you four points, but the second one is probably the the what Paul is mostly focusing on. Our prayers are unhindered, and there is with them the confidence that we have free and unfettered access, even with a sure confidence, to the throne of grace. This is reflected in the words of Hebrews 4.16. I brought this up a minute ago. Here it is. And I'll tell you about something in just a second about prayers. Okay. Uh, I don't know. 4.16 says... Um, uh, 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, I have permission to say this. I talked to her today, the lady that was sexually violated about three weeks ago. I've called her a few times to make sure she's okay, and I called her today, and she was in much better spirits. She says that I've slept two nights without having a uh, uh, nightmare. And um, uh, she said, I said, you know, we talked a little bit, and I said about this guy, and I said, you know, you can present the gospel to him because they caught him. They got the guy, okay? And uh, she said, I did while he was there with me. He stayed like five hours forcing himself on her, and she was giving him the gospel. That's a person that can understand 
the riches of Christ. I'm telling you, that is amazing. And she gave me permission to, to talk about this. And she also said that she got her second medical check and it's clear. And she thanks everybody for her prayers. But that to me is astonishing that she was able to at least talk to somebody about the Lord while he was doing what he was doing. These marvelous privileges are ours simply through faith in him. By trusting in the finished work of Christ, we may now enter the most holy place where God dwells. And we may do it without any sort of hindrance at all. In Israel of old, only the high priest and only once a year could gain this type of access. However, through the torn body of Christ, which is represented by the torn veil in the temple in Jerusalem, we have full and unfettered access to God. Life application. The prayers of God's people now pass through Christ and immediately into the presence of God. There are no obstructions at all because Christ has opened the way back to full and unfettered access to him. What was lost in Eden is realized in what Christ has done. Our fellowship is intimate and it is immediate. Right now, let us never assume that our prayers are unheard. Each one is heard because of what Christ has done for us. If they are not responded to in the way that we want, it is not that God doesn't hear. It is that God has something else planned. Good things happen to bad people. Christians are martyred while they're telling people about the gospel in other countries. Bad things happen, but good will come out of those things. We may not understand it now, and it may frustrate us, or it may, might make us scared, or whatever our emotions are at the time, but good things will come out of what God is doing. He has made the perfect plan. And what we see as evil, God uses for good, just like with Joseph. I'm not going to be able to get another one. We've got 10 minutes left, and I don't think we'll be able to. Let me see how long this is. Give me just one second here. There. Yes, I'm going to do one more. I'm going to do one more. We're just going to have to try to get it done in 3.13. Let me read the verse. Oh, and it'll finish a paragraph, so this is good. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Speaking about trouble, he's an apostle. He went through all kinds of bad things. All of the apostles did. And yet, they knew that they had a better hope. They had a sure hope. Paul now makes a petition for strength. All translations stated as a request for strength for his readers. I ask you that you do not lose heart. However, the scholar Bengel says that the nominative of the finite verb is naturally the subject of the infinitive which follows. For this reason, he says that it should read, I ask of God that I may not faint. He is a lone voice in this, and it seems to then not agree, uh, yes, not agree with the words of verse 16, which are yet ahead. Let me make a note right here. There, I'm sorry, I had to make a note on something. Okay, however, if he is speaking of himself, the word therefore is referring to the grace of God which was given, his words, therefore, the grace of God which was given to him in verse 2, and which he continues to refer to after that. If he is speaking of his audience, the word therefore is referring to the mystery which has been revealed to them that they are now fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That was referred to in verse 6, and which he continues to refer to after that. So it all depends on what is being said. It's difficult to be dogmatic about this. Bengal could be right. He couldn't be wrong, okay? 
Either way, Paul is petitioning for strength so that either he or the Ephesians do not lose heart. The word is ekakeo. It is a word which indicates to be utterly spiritless, to be wearied out, to be exhausted. In classical Greek, it also means to be cowardly, but this is probably not the intent here. Rather, Paul is using it in the sense of being dispirited. It is used only six times in the New Testament, once by Jesus in Luke 18, verse 1, and five times by Paul. Whether he is referring to himself or to the Ephesians, he notes that the losing of heart is on account of his tribulations for you. That's his word, tribulations for you. His work was on behalf of the Gentile people, and despite his present imprisonment, this situation could actually continue to be a source of benefit. Paul's looking at all the positives, even in a time of big negatives. He then expressly states that this benefit is for your glory. Whatever he's talking about at the beginning, the ultimate result is the same. It is for your glory. Here, he either means that they're not losing heart because of his suffering was for their glory, or that his sufferings were for their glory, one or the other. This because they actually bolstered his teachings as he was willing to suffer for the very thing that he had proclaimed to them. Everybody got that? He had been given a high office in the household of God, and yet he suffered in chains because of it. His ability to suffer in this way and not lose heart, either him or them, was or became a marvelous example to them as well. Just like Christ set the example, he went through all of the troubles and all of the trials and all of the tribulations, but he was the example. Paul is saying the same thing. He is able to be an example for them in whatever he's referring to, whether he's hoping or hoping for them, whatever, in the end, it is for them, for their strengthening, for their understanding, and being able to cope with the situations that they will face as well. And the good thing is that this is all written down, so it actually pertains to all of us as well. My poor daughter's over there falling asleep right now. Yeah, okay, anyway, she just, she looks like she's got something on her mind. The reason why is because even though she's here, her phone doesn't stop ringing from work. She takes care of how many people? Three offices? Three full offices? Yeah, three full offices. And they can't leave her alone even while she's here. So she she's constantly got her little brain going. So she's over there. I'm sure she's exhausted. Okay, life application. When we see people suffer for the sake of Christ, and yet they remain steadfast in their proclamation of him, it strengthens us. As this is so, think of what I just told you a couple minutes ago. As this is so, we should then be willing to stand firm in our proclamation of Christ as well, thus giving others this same confidence. Let us not draw back in our time of testing. Okay, and that's, yeah, we're just right on time today. I'm glad we got that last one out because we finished the paragraph, and we'll go ahead and thank the Lord and head our different ways. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. And Lord, we lift up our sister Lenore, who went through a great trial and was able to endure through it and also to actually proclaim you in the process. And we we thank you for people of that type of faith and that ability to look beyond the circumstances that they're in to the greater hope which lies ahead. And Lord, I pray even for the person that was caught doing what he did, and he obviously has a record of other things as well. I would pray that he would take to heart what he's heard and contemplate it while he's sitting in prison and that he would be willing to uh, yield his own life to you 
I would pray that this would be the case because he can be just as effective in the prison as we can be outside of prison when we tell others about Jesus. So we certainly pray for this, Lord. Bad things can turn into good things because you are a great God and you make it so. Lord, help us to be responsible with our time and to tell others about this wonderful message of salvation. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to meet here and to share in your word. And we look forward to it on Sunday, the Lord willing. Lord, we just love you and praise you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.